All right, if you have a Bible of the Gospel of John, Gospel of John, chapter 15. On Monday, I did two hours introducing the Bible study exercise for the next six weeks. I gave assignments and all of that. Tonight, we began doing some work on the Bible study exercise that we will be working on the next six weeks. If you didn't hear that, then you have no clue what we're talking about, so we'll introduce it this way. We'll go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I'm sorry if I said John 6. John 15. Okay. If I said John 6, I apologize. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Okay. Maybe I said 6. I don't know. I, I know I said uh, for the next six weeks. Okay. The Bible study exercise for the next six weeks. Okay. But John 15. All right. So, but on Monday, I introduced the Bible study exercise, which we'll be working on for the next six weeks. And if you didn't hear that, then you don't know what we're going to do. So I'm going to use John 15 to introduce it. If obviously anyone listening online who's already looked at the curriculum, you know that they start John 15 and verse at a different verse. I'm not going to say which one it is. And I'm going to not start there. I'm going to back up to verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. Here we go. It starts off by saying, if the world, Jesus is speaking, and this is Jesus speaking in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Now that verse could spend a couple of months trying to figure out what in the world is going on there. But okay, verse 23. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But, th- but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, this is where the curriculum begins. Verse 26. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. All right. That, now, they go all the way into chapter 16, and they skip a bunch of verses down. And we won't read the chapter 16 part right now. But verse 26 is the first verse in the curriculum that introduces the next six weeks of study. And I think you can probably guess what it's going to be about. What do you think it's going to be about? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit here is known as, is identified by two different titles. What are they? Comforter 
and spirit of truth. Now, we, if we were to, if you were put to the test that you have to prove that that is the Holy Spirit, what would you use as your argument that that is referring to the Holy Spirit? Because it doesn't say Holy Spirit, does it? No. No. It doesn't say Holy Ghost, does it? No. So, what would you utilize to justify that, yes, that's referring to the Holy Spirit? I don't want to get too distracted on this. I would just thought I would ask the question because uh, anytime you turn to this, everyone just says, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. And then you ask someone why, and they say... Okay, uh, Bobby is looking to the text itself to find a clue why it should be the Holy Spirit. And Bobby pointed to which, what phrase did you point to, Bobby? Okay, that the Comforter is being sent from the Father. All right, that's possible. That's, that's at least we know it comes from God, right? Okay, what, what else do we have? It proceeds from the Father. Okay, possibly. What else? Anything else there that we give it away? Okay, does uh, chapter 16, verse 7 identify the, the comforter and the spirit of truth in chapter 15 as the Holy Spirit? Okay, chapter 14, okay. Sarah saying chapter 14, chapter 14, what verse? Verse 26, what does it say? There we go. So chapter 14, verse 26 is how you would prove that chapter 15, verse 26, right? Right? It's 15, 26, is that it's the Holy Spirit. So does everybody want to, may want to write that down, all right? That chapter 14, verse 26, identifies the Comforter as the Holy Spirit, and then that is mentioned in chapter 15, verse 26. All right, right. So we can at least verify that. Now, the only reason I point that out, the only reason I do that is because so many times in Christianity, you kind of just, you walk into Christianity and you're just told, that's what that verse is referring to. And so we have a tendency to just then, from that point on, say, that's what that verse is referring to. And rarely do we ever stop and ask ourselves, well, how do we know that? And so I just wanted to put it to a little bit of a test there just so that we can see. All right. Um, is there anything and just is there anything interesting about how the verse is structured in chapter 15, verse 26? Does anything jump out at you that may be like, hmm, that's interesting? Just anything. Just doing a little observational challenge here before we really dive in this evening, because I like doing this. Okay, anything else? The word comforter. Anything interesting about the word? In the King James, it's capitalized, is it not? It's capitalized. Is that, would, that, would that signify something? Okay. Okay. It, it would signify something, right? Yes. Okay, so I think that I just, just, I'm just giving you little clues to make you go, oh, yeah, that, that would be, that would be 
something I would stop and go, huh, I wonder, I wonder what's going on there. Do you find it interesting, I'll just throw this out there, that the, the Holy Spirit as a comforter is mentioned right after what is discussed in verse 18 to 25. I read 18 to 25 to you. Being hated. And then the Holy Spirit is referred to as a comforter. That, that is somewhat interesting, is it not? Okay. All right. So um, well, we, we could draw a lot of, of, of questions there. But this all introduces the study of the Holy Spirit. As the, the curriculum, they start it this way, or this is what they say. Christianity is more than a philosophy. It is not a set of rules or a collection of religious practices. At its core, Christianity is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his resurrection. Then they stress, hear that word again, a relationship. As followers of Christ, we do not worship a distant God. He is right here with us. The Holy Spirit is the person of God present with us. The person of God to whom we relate directly. He guides us, teaches us, empowers us, comforts us, and convicts us of our sins. I want you to write down all of the things they say the Holy Spirit does, all right? Because any study, and I'll I'll give them to you here in just a second. Any study of the Holy Spirit, to me, and to anyone, I think, just thinking, I, I mean, I know in most churches it's not, but to me, it's a very controversial subject. It's a very touchy subject. In fact, it's a subject that really bothers me greatly. And if you said, of all the, I mean, there's lots of different subjects. If you ask me what I would prefer to avoid it, this is one I would prefer to avoid. And the reason I would like to avoid this is because this, to me, is the very one that if, if, like, if I was an atheist, if I was an agnostic, this is the very subject I would go to to argue that Christianity can be proven as absolute garbage. Because Christians all over the place claim that the Holy Spirit dwells where? In me. That means God himself dwells inside of me. The claim there is one of extreme arrogance. Even though we may not mean it that way, that's extreme arrogance. If you work with someone, you're looking at them saying, God lives inside of me, doesn't live inside of you. That's already a pretty arrogant claim. But what makes it worse is we claim that God living in us actually does things for us that he's not doing for anyone else. And they give us a number of things the Holy Spirit is supposedly doing in us. Number one was, he guides us. That's a massive claim, is it not? That means we're not being guided, listen, We're not being guided by an external thing. We're being guided by an internal thing. 
And the internal thing guiding us is God himself. Now, if God is guiding me internally, that means every direction I go, every decision I make, you think would be better than any decision anyone in the world would ever make. It's one thing to say the Bible is our guide, right? Because that means it's where? External, and then there's a major problem. I've got to read it. I've got to try to understand it. I've got to try to interpret it. And then I've got to try to correctly apply it. And then that means I have to be trying to... And then we have to even ask, Do we already know the answer. I don't even possess the ability to obey it 100%. We already acknowledge that, right? But if I say that I have the external infallible word of God, and then I have God inside of me, we should be better than any GPS system ever invented. Oh yeah, everyone should be like, find a Christian. They will know what to do, where to go, because they have God in them. And the world is not running to the church asking for directions. In fact, the world, more and more people are leaving the church, not coming to the church. That's a massive claim, is it not? What do we do with that? He guides us. What was the second one? He teaches us. Oh, man, do I have a problem with this one. He teaches us. 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of church history. And God himself is teaching us, not outside of us, but inside of me. Inside of me, the Spirit of God is teaching me. You're telling me after 2,000 years of indwelling believers that we cannot even come to an agreement on, I don't know, baptism, the Lord's Supper, salvation, worship, church leadership. I mean, we can't come to agreement on anything. How in the world can we walk around claiming God is inside of me teaching me and, well, nobody can agree. I mean, if God is inside Bobby teaching him and God is inside me teaching me, we should be in complete agreement because it's the same God teaching us both. That's a problem. Does everyone agree? But this is the kind of thing that's just common in the evangelical world. We just make these... Remember, I always say there's the Christianity we sell... There's the Christianity we pretend to have, and then there's the Christianity that is real that looks a million times different than the brochure. We get the brochure, and you're like, wow, this looks like it's going to be an amazing cruise. And you get there, and it's a canoe with a hole in it and a creek that I have to paddle, and the creek has no water in it. And you're like, that doesn't look like the brochure. I'm getting ripped off. But I, look, I, we were, anyone in this room have been a Christian for a million times. You've been taught all of these things a million times over. And here's what happens. You're taught all of this and you're like, okay, he's going to guide me. And then you make a decision, which is the wrong decision. And you're like, well, where was the guidance? Well, then people are like, well, you weren't listening to the guidance. Well, I, I didn't hear the guy. Like if he, uh, you think if he's guiding me, he would be able to override my own stupidity, right? He's God. 
So then you have to go, well, wait a minute. Maybe he guided me into the sin. And everybody's like, how dare you say that? Okay, well then, explain. He's teaching me? Even the Catholics are smart enough to say, no, 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 no. He's teaching the magisterium. <laughs> okay, he's, he's teaching, at least they lead that to the magisterium who has that authority. In the evangelical world, we give it to everyone. Well, if he's teaching everyone and nobody can agree, something's wrong, agree? So he supposedly guides, he supposedly teaches. What's the third thing? Empowers. Oh, here we go again. The whole empowering concept. From the curriculum? He empowers. Now, if he's empowering me, how much power? Everyone limits the power, right? It's always weird. God's empowering me, but then we always say, however, you can't be what? Sinless. Well, if God is empowering me and I can't be sinless, are you telling me he doesn't have the power to make me sinless? That would call into question the one empowering me, which is the Holy Spirit, which we would say is third member of the Trinity, right? God. Okay, well, that, that doesn't work. And, and, and we, all, we have to limit the power, don't we? We have to limit the power because anyone halfway honest knows that nobody's going to be sinless. So then how much power does he give me? And if Christians for 2,000 years have been empowered by God, why has there been church splits and sin? And I mean, the, the, the thing with the SBC right now, that report is beyond disturbing of all comprehension that he can even, I mean, it's just, I mean, I can't even talk about it. It's so messed up. How does that happen in a body where we're all supposedly empowered by God? This is not, a, this is not an easy subject. Now, it's an easy subject if I just follow, you know, hey, here's the curriculum. Here's what I'm supposed to teach. And I'm just, I'm saying, I can stand behind a pulpit and say, the Holy Spirit guides you. The Holy Spirit teaches you. The Holy Spirit empowers you. And everybody says, and in some churches, they'll do what? As they walk out the door and then get divorced six months later. Wow, wow, how much power did he give you? Agreed? Uh, th- this, is, this is the one I would go after if I were an atheist and agnostic. I'd be like, you people are insane. You pretending. You're like a little kid pretending to be a superhero. What else does he do, supposedly, according to this? Comforts us. And then lastly, and com- so comfort us and then convict us. Convict us. And then you have to sometimes question, where is that conviction? Where was the conviction when the Southern Baptist Convention were telling victims who had been raped and abused by pastors that they were a part of a satanic plot to distract the church from evangelism. 
Where was the conviction of the Holy Spirit when MacArthur excommunicated a woman who was being abused by her husband? The husband then is found guilty of sexually abusing their children. He goes to prison. They still have not lifted the excommunication on the woman. The the victim is excommunicated to this day, and the husband was supported by the church while in prison. Where's the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And they would feel justified in what they did. Now, we can look, we can look at our own lives. Right? What, like, why wasn't I convicted at that point? Why? Why wasn't I convicted before I even committed the act? Right? Wouldn't that be great if the Holy Spirit's there convicting me? Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit like, boom, what are you getting ready to do? Boom, what are you getting ready to do? Oh, man, I can't do that because I'm getting beat from the inside out. True? That's, those are some gigantic claims, are they not? I want everyone to write those claims down. There's probably more, but I, wear, I want you to have those claims down because maybe in six weeks we'll have some possible answer to why we clearly don't see that. Even though Christians claim it, Even, even the denominations who have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and falling and t- speaking in tongues, look at all the absolute crazy scandals that's happened in the charismatic world in the history of Christianity. Right? I mean, we've had crazy things happened in the charismatic world. The whole Hillsong thing blew up and all of the things that have happened there. I mean, so even if you're in a charismatic or a non-charismatic church, we don't seem to see all of this stuff that we constantly claim is supposed to be happening. So that, that leaves us with a couple of choices. What does it leave us with? The Bible's not true. Or... Maybe we've misinterpreted what the Holy Spirit does and doesn't do, and we've got to correct it. I don't know what we're going to come up with, right? But we've got, we've got, to, work, we've got to somehow try to make sense of it, yes? Those are big claims. So here's what I, I gave uh, uh, for the assignment. I gave everyone the topical method of Bible study. I'm not going to have us walk through that tonight. We're going to do a little bit uh, else, but we're going to at least play, a lot, play with the topical method just a little bit, all right? One of the things with the topical method is you start uh, making a list of all the related words that would be connected to the Holy Spirit. We're not going to do that right now, but I will have us do this. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, look up, let's first look up, look up the phrase Holy Spirit. Look up the phrase Holy Spirit and see where the first reference you find for Holy Spirit. If it's the Blue Letter Bible app, make sure it's searching the whole Bible and not just the New Testament. All right, we'll make sure everyone... Okay, yeah. Holy Spirit. All right, 5111 is the first place. Okay, are they together? Or? Okay, all right, all right. Okay. Oh, there, yeah, there's going to be a big difference right there. Okay. Well, um, what... Your, uh, which one are, are you, the first one you have is where? Psalm 
51.11. And what's the first one in the King James? So Exodus 35:21. Okay. Okay. All right. Psalm 51:11 is the first place it's used. All right. Let's just look at it. Psalm 51:11. Yeah, Stacy starts singing it. <laughs> Psalm 51:11. Well, I just want to look at, I just wanted to grab the first one for two phrases. That's all I'm just doing. I'm just, uh, everyone's already got their work cut out for them. And so I just wanted to at least just see what we find. The, fr- the very first time we come across the phrase, I just wanted to see what it looks like. And it's in Psalm 51 where David is doing what? Confessing his sin. All right. And then he says this, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me couple of interesting things. Spirit is not capitalized. All right. Just something to take note of. I'm not saying it's going to make, make a major difference. Something to just pay attention to. What, but what's the most important phrase probably there? He's praying to God. Thy Holy Spirit, indicating the Holy Spirit is connected with God. All right. So, I think somewhat interesting. Agreed. All right. Now look up the word Holy Ghost. A lot. Okay. Does the Holy Ghost term show up anywhere in the New Testament or in the Old Testament? No. Yeah, nowhere in the Old Testament. So it's a New Testament phrase, right? Which is the interesting, we have Holy Spirit, Old Testament will use it. I mean, it's used in the New Testament too, but Holy Ghost is a uniquely New Testament uh, phrase. And where's the first place it shows up in the New Testament? Matthew one eighteen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. So, interesting that here the Holy Ghost is connected with the, basically, conception of Christ, right? Of, of, or, or the, Mary being found with child, if we want to use the most biblical term possible, um, and that that is, that, that is significant, all right? Now, it's just interesting that the first verse, the first time you, you read the phrases, here, I just think this is unique just from a Bible study hermeneutical perspective. Both cases where the terms are first used, it's, it's, it's used in a way implying that you already know who this is. Take not the Holy Spirit from me, as if you already know what the Holy Spirit is. Here, she's found with child... How is the exact wording in Matthew one eighteen? The exact of the Holy Ghost. It's just used like you know who the Holy Ghost is, right? It doesn't stop to explain who the Holy Ghost is. It just it's just there, like you're supposed to already figure it out by this point, which is just interesting from a Bible study perspective. So that the first mention is already giving us the idea that you should have already figured it out by the time you've gotten to that point. In other words, these the authors when they use it in these settings. They're using it in a way, they, you're just using, using it with the idea that the reader is already going to know who the Holy Spirit is. 
So then you would go, where would you develop the doctrine of the Holy Spirit before Psalm 51 or before Matthew 1? Where would you start to develop it? That's something we could work on. We won't do that now because this is what we're going to do. All right? No, we're not going to, because uh, I got people, I've already given the assignment for the topical method, so people are already working on it. What we're going to do is grab a Bible dictionary. The Holy Spirit, yes. We're just going to see how the Bible dictionary handles it tonight. That's all we're going to do tonight, right? Now, we, we could start doing a, a, like a, the topical method, but I've already had people working on it. And we'll, we may come back and do some work on it, but I just wanted you to just see the first places they're mentioned and how they were mentioned because I just think it's interesting. All right? Here we go. Uh, does anybody else need a dictionary? I'll get, him, I'll get, I'll get it right here. All right. What page? 573. 573. All right, let's see what the dictionary does here. All right, the dictionary starts off that the Holy Spirit is, are everybody ready? First sentence, third person of the Trinity who exercises the power of the Father and the Son in creation and redemption. All right. It starts off by telling us the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. It doesn't seek to try to prove this. It just makes a dogmatic assertion. So therefore, claiming that the Holy Spirit is, well, deity, right? One God, three distinct persons. It's the third person of the Trinity. Okay? That's, that's a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot we, could, we could work with, okay? But I think this is interesting. Because remember, this is very important. The curriculum gave us some things that the Holy Spirit supposedly does for us. What are those things? Guide, teach, and powers, comforts, and convicts. All right. This does mention power right from the start. But the power of the Holy Spirit is used in what two things? Creation and redemption. Now, we would have no problem with the creation idea, right? Yes? All right? Uh, and I don't think we would have a problem with the redemption idea. Agreed? All right. We wouldn't have an issue with either one. Those, those would not cause us any problems, yes? That wouldn't cause us any problems. Uh, it wouldn't go, well, wait a minute, what, what about this and that? Now, when you take that power, because if he has the power of creation, that's, that's, that's complete power. And if that power is working in me, then there would be hard for you to come and limit said power, would it not? So that's going to possibly create a problem. If the Holy Spirit has enough power to be involved in the creation of everything, whew, that's, that would be what kind of power? Omnipotent. And that would make sense since the, it's the third person of the Trinity. It's divine power. So if we have omnipotent power inside of us, you do see where this becomes somewhat problematic, right? Just from a logical standpoint. But okay. All right. Um, all right, there's something we could do there. Uh, we may come back to it because this does raise a question, but we, we, we won't get into it now, all right? They go on to say, because the Holy Spirit is the power by which believers come to Christ and see with new eyes of faith, 
He is closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's another major claim, is it not? He is closer to us than we ourselves. Man. Okay. Yeah, I got something in me that seems to indicate it knows me better than I know me. And if that thing that knows, that, that I shouldn't say thing because that'd be a, a wrong. If he knows me better than I know me, and he is somehow communicating or working on me, again, you, you're seeing that, that it's hard to get around what that should be, look, that, that that should be showing something in a pretty major way. Agreed? But we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there because, I mean, the dictionary is just going straight in right here. Not even trying to build it. It's just telling us the way it is. Um, what, what do we have next here? Um, like the eyes of the body through which we see physical things, he is seldom in focus to be seen directly because he is the one through whom all else is seen in a new light. This explains why the relationship of the Father and the Son is more prominent in the Gospels because it is through the eyes of the Holy Spirit that the Father-Son relationship is viewed. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Uh, uh, that, that's making, uh, the dictionary is definitely making a lot of assertions, are they not? Okay, they're making a lot of claims. And I think, I think this, I think this is, is interesting to read for this purpose. I think when it comes to the Holy Spirit, a lot of claims are made. Wouldn't you agree that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, a lot of claims are made? And I think we have to ask ourselves, I wonder how much of what we have picked up about the Holy Spirit is just based off dogmatic assertion without any real taking apart Scripture to justify or prove it. I mean, they're not even putting Scripture there to try to back any of that up, are they? No, I mean, that first paragraph is just no Scripture. They're just like, boom, 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 boom. And you're like, okay, well, that, that's interesting. Then the next paragraph begins with what? Holy Spirit appears in the Gospel of John as the power by which Christians are brought to faith and helped to understand their walk with God. Now, the first part we don't have an issue with, right? That it's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings me to faith. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that brings me to salvation. We have no, we have no issue with that one. But then they immediately go on to say that the Holy Spirit's there to help us understand. The Holy Spirit's there to help us understand. The Holy Spirit's there to help us understand. Which is always bizarre to me because, once again, if I have the Holy Spirit helping me understand, why is there so much misunderstanding in Christianity? How can there be misunderstanding in Christianity if all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit giving us understanding? Everybody agree that that's a problem? Okay. What's the next phrase? He brings a person to new birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, John 3, 6. It is the Spirit who gives life, John 6, 63. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, or helper, whom Jesus promised to his disciples after his ascension. 
The Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are unified in ministering to believers. John 14, 16, and 26. It is through the Helper that the Father and Son abide with the disciples. John 15, 26. The unified ministry of the Trinity is also seen as the Spirit, uh, as the Spirit brings the world under conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, here, here we go. Listen to the next phrase. See, this is where I'm going to have all kinds of problems. What are they going to say? He guides who? Believers. That would be every believer, right? Unto all truth with what? He hears from the Father and the Son. Stop right there. That's... I, I, how, I don't know how you can write this. Like, if I'm the author of the dictionary, he, he guides all believers into truth. Why do I need your dictionary? Agreed? Why do I need a commentary? Why do you need me? If the Holy Spirit's in you, guiding you into all truth, you don't need me. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a dictionary. You don't need a commentary. You don't need a concordance. You know what? You, you could argue you don't even really need what? The Bible. Now, some will say, no, no, no. He guides us into all truth by helping us understand the Bible. But then you have to say, well, wait a minute. If he's guiding us into all truth by helping us understand the Bible, why don't Christians agree on the Bible? And again, if, he, if he's using the Bible to guide us into all truth, why do we need any help? I mean, I got a, I got a million problems with that. What's the uh, next part? Uh, let's see, where did we stop? I got to find where he stops. You see, he got okay. Guides believers into all truth with what he hears from the Father and the Son. It is it is a remarkable fact that each of the persons of the Trinity serves the other as all defer to one another. The Son says what he hears from the Father. The Father witnesses to and glorifies the Son. The Father and Son honor the Holy Spirit by commissioning Him to speak in their name. The Holy Spirit honors the Father and Son by helping the community of believers. Like Father and Son, the Holy Spirit is at the disposal of the other persons of the Trinity, and all three are one and graciously being at the disposal of the redeemed family of believers. The Holy Spirit's attitude and ministry are marked by generosity. His chief function is to what? Illumine Jesus' teaching, to glorify his person, and to work in the life of the individual believer and the church. So, according to this, what did the curriculum give us? What was the curriculum? What does the Holy Spirit do according to the curriculum? Guides? Teaches? Empowers, comforts. Everybody with me? Everybody with me? Okay. All right. And convicts. Everybody got those written down? Now we got to write down another list. What does the dictionary tell us? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is he does what first? He illumines. Jesus' teaching. What does it mean to illumine? 
To what? To give light to it. To give understanding to it. Now, this is similar to what the curriculum says, but I just want you to write it down the way they have it. To illumine, to open your eyes. All right? Now, I, I, I was taught this over and over and over as a young Christian. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates. The Holy, the, this is what I was taught. Revelation has ceased, but illumination continues. The Holy Spirit's not giving new revelation, but he's given illumination. So when I read and study the Bible, he will illuminate it and I will understand it. But I never could figure this out. If he's the one illuminating it, why do I keep finding myself buying commentaries? And why do the commentaries sometimes tell me things that the Holy Spirit, and if he's illuminating it, how am I supposed to know it's the Holy Spirit? Because I think it, right? Oh, I read it and I came to this thought, oh, that was the Holy Spirit showing me what it meant. Do you realize how utterly insane that gets? Because everyone would tell you that they're under, guess what that immediately makes? If I give everyone in this room a scripture, right? If I give everyone in this room the same scripture, everybody with me? I give everyone the same scripture. I have everyone go to a different room. You come back with an interpretation. Guess what everyone would be able to claim? That your, your interpretation came from the Holy Spirit, which would make it what? Infallible. Do you understand how utterly insane that is? Right? There's illuminate, or to illuminate. What's the second thing? Okay, it, it's the last part of page 573. On, yeah. His chief function, right there, to illumine, Jesus' teaching. Next, to glorify his person. You may want to write that down, to glorify his person. Number three, to work in the life of the individual believer and the church. To work in the life of the individual believer and the church. Now, once again, that, that, that's making a matter. Do does everyone understand the, the claims that that is making? That's claiming that I have God literally working in me and the unbeliever doesn't. And for the church to claim that the Holy Spirit's working in it after 2,000 years of utter insanity that's happened in the life of the church in 2,000 years? Seemingly to be a problem, right? right? Everybody got those down? All right. Now, they go on, this quality of generosity is prominent in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the Holy Spirit prepares the way for the births of John the Baptist and Jesus the Son. At the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God is present in the form of a dove. This completes the presence of the Trinity at the inauguration of the Son's ministry. Uh... John 1.33, or I'm sorry, they give some scriptures. Jesus, also filled with the Holy Spirit, is led into the wilderness to be tempted. He claims to be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. During his ministry, Jesus refers to the Spirit of God as the power by which he is casting out demons, uh, thereby invading the stronghold of Beelzebub and freeing those held captive. According to the Spirit's work with the Father and Son and realizing the redeeming power of the kingdom of God, 
God's kingdom is not only the reign of the Son, but also the reign of the Spirit, as all share in the reign of the Father. The person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Gospels is confirmed by his work in the early church. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.5, is the pouring out of the Spirit's power in missions and evangelism, Acts 1.8. This prophecy of Jesus and of Joel 2.28-32 begins on Pentecost. Many of those who hear of the finished work of God in Jesus' death and resurrection repent of their sins. And this act of repentance, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, becoming witnesses of God's grace through the Spirit. Paul's teaching about the Holy Spirit harmonizes with the accounts of the Spirit's activity in the Gospels and Acts. According to Paul, it is by the Holy Spirit that one confesses that Jesus is Lord. Through the same Spirit, varieties of gifts are given to the body of Christ to ensure its richness and unity. The Holy Spirit is the way to Jesus Christ, the Son, and to the Father. He is the person who bears witness to us that we are children of God. He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You may want to write those two things down. Two more things the Holy Spirit supposedly does. What's the first one? Bears witness that we are the children of God. Bears witness that we are the children of God. What's the next one? Makes intercession for us. Now we're going to be right back to another claim here. See it? The Holy Spirit also reveals to Christians the deep things of God. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God. It's, it kind of goes with that, but I just want you to just write them down. I just want you to just, what I want you to see tonight is all these claims made about what the Holy Spirit does. The claims are just, in some ways it feels like it's never ending. Hey, you, you understand the deep things of God by the Holy Spirit. Well, I've tried to just explain the Trinity to some people and they can't figure it out. Well, wait, you've got the Holy Spirit. You should, I shouldn't even have to explain the Trinity to you, right? I shouldn't have to even explain the hypostatic union. Should you be able to figure it out? Um, and, the, uh, and the mystery of Christ. The Holy Spirit acts with God in Christ as the pledge or guarantee by which believers are sealed for the day of salvation. You can write that one down. He seals us to the day of salvation. By which they walk and live and abound in hope with power. How many times is that power idea going to show up? Man, that power is a constant theme in the evangelical world. We have power, we have power, we have power, we have power. It's, it's, it's just so common. Uh, against the lust and enmity of the flesh, Paul contrasts the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can write that down. It produces fruit. You can put that down. Produces fruit. Since the Holy Spirit is the expressed power of the Trinity, it is imperative that one not grieve the Spirit, since no further appeal to the Father and Son on the day of redemption is available. Jesus made this clear in his dispute with the religious authorities who attributed his ministry to Satan rather than the Spirit and thereby committed the unforgivable sin. In Paul's letters, 
Christian liberty stems from the work of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit is the uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. Um, you can just write that one down. Christian liberty is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly how we would process that one, but okay, that would be interesting. This is a process of beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed in the same image from the glory glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The personal work of the Holy Spirit is accordingly one with that of the Father and the Son. So Paul can uh, relate the grace, love, and communion of the Trinity and a Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Among the other New Testament writings, the Spirit's ministry is evident in the profound teaching of Hebrews 9.14, which shows the relationship of God, Christ, and the eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament and preparation for a coming of Christ is explained in this and other passages in Hebrews. This leads us to consider the working of the Spirit in the Old Testament in light of His ministry in the New Testament. Although the phrase Holy Spirit occurs only three times in the Old Testament, Psalm 51.11, Isaiah 63.10 and 11. Uh, The Spirit's work is everywhere evident. All right. So they say the Holy Spirit's only mentioned three times, but his work is evident throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit is the energy of God in creation. Genesis 1.2, Job 26.13 and Isaiah 32.15. He endows human beings with personal life by breathing into their nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 2.7. The Spirit strives with fallen humankind in Genesis 6.3. He comes upon certain judges and warriors with charismatic power. Uh, Joshua, Numbers, um, Othnel, and Judges, Gideon, Samson. However, the Spirit departs from Saul because of his disobedience. In the long span of Old Testament prophecy, the Spirit plays a prominent role. David declared, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Ezekiel claimed that the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me. The Spirit also inspired holiness in the Old Testament believer. It also promised to give a new heart to God's people. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's Ezekiel 36. And then there's just two paragraphs left. This anticipates the crucial work of the Spirit in the ministry of the Messiah. The prophecy of Isaiah 11 is a Trinitarian preview of the working of the Father, Spirit, and the Son, who is the branch of Jesse. Looking forward to the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to prophesy, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon me. The Holy Spirit inspired Jesus with wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord, righteousness, and faithfulness. Thus we come full cycle to the New Testament, where Jesus claims the fulfillment of this prophecy in himself in Luke 4, 18-19. And then the last paragraph. Isaiah 42, 1-9 summarizes the redeeming work of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the salvation of the lost. As God spoke through the prophet, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. No clearer reflection of the intimate interworking of the persons of the Trinity can be found in the Old Testament than in this prophecy. It ties God's grace in the Old and New Testament together in remarkable harmony. There you have it. Now, when you read all of that, 
do you get any kind of a, do you think you get a clear understanding of the Holy Spirit? How would you summarize all of that? You can be honest. How would you summarize all of that? Well, I mean, it, it does very little to give us much like, like you think that the entry would be like, okay, the Holy Spirit is divine. Here's the scriptures that prove his divinity. The Holy Spirit is a person. Here's the scriptures that prove his personhood, right? Here's the, uh, what the Holy Spirit, I mean, they try to give us a lot of what he does for us and through us, but no matter all the words they use, they, they talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they really just basically, if you break it down, give us a long list of what? What the Holy Spirit supposedly does you could say this way, what he did for individuals in the Bible, because I mentioned some of the things he did for certain individuals, right? How the Holy Spirit was involved in the ministry of Christ, yes? And then what the Holy Spirit does for us. So really, the whole thing is what the Holy Spirit has done for people and what it's doing for us. That's really the, the emphasis on, I think whenever it comes to the Holy Spirit, it's all, the emphasis is always what it's doing through us and for us. That's really always the emphasis of, of when it talks about the Holy Spirit. What it's doing for us. So that, I know that that doesn't leave us any answers this evening. It raises more questions. Right? It raises some questions. So, just, I think, let, let's do this to just wrap this up because I want to at least get us somewhere, right? Because everyone's working on the topical method, or those listening online are working on the topical method. So I don't know what they're going to find, but I want them to have these questions to be struggling with as they're looking up all of the references, as you start looking, because there are a lot of references. So I want, I want us to think about this. And I'm not saying that this is a good way to, to work it, but I think we're going to be left with some, some very, we're going to be left with some very difficult choices in what to do. So let's think about this. When we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, right? We have a couple of things that we can try to do, all right? First, we all have to admit, no, not a lot of people listening online are not about to admit this tonight, but I think everyone should. If they're not willing to admit it, I just think then you're just, you're deceiving yourself. We can all admit that if you look at everything the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing in us and for us, and you look at the reality of Christianity, would you tell me something is horribly wrong? The brochure does not look like the reality. The brochure shows this, you know, five-star luxury cruise ship in the middle of this beautifully blue, clear ocean with the best food that you've ever found. And the reality is we're in a broken canoe and a dry creek bed with no food and it's 127 degrees and we're dying. Okay? That, that's what it looks like, the difference. And people say, well, that's a little extreme. Give, have you seen 2,000 years of church history? Have you seen your own life? So, I think we can agree there's a problem here. Nobody wants to talk about the problem. But I'm tired of nobody talking about the problem because we've all, we've all witnessed the problem in our own lives. Okay, if I've got that much power in me, I should be able to be like, perfect! My feet shouldn't even touch the ground. And nobody should ever argue again, ever, with any of my interpretations. Because they came to me from God. But you're going to say, but 
Well, your interpretation came from God, which again just shows you the utter insanity of the Protestant position, right? And sometimes you just like, what? How do we not realize how foolish we sound? Again, at least the, the Catholic Church limits it, right? I mean, you either limit it or you open up the door for chaos. So here's what our options are. Okay, so we can all agree that there's a discrepancy. Agreed? So, what are some solutions to the discrepancy? Well, anyone who doesn't show the full power is, come on, not saved. That's the, that's the go-to answer, man. That's the, that's the Christian get-out-of-free-jail card, right? If someone in another religion does something bad, we're like, that, the whole religion is messed up. Someone does something wrong in Christianity, they're not saved. Don't you love that we've got to get out of free jail card? Any, and isn't it great that we can always tell who's not saved? I, I'm, I'm glad we have such power to do that, right? Okay. So, that's one option, which is going to put everyone in a perpetual state of doing what? Either doubting your salvation, or number two, pretending that you're, you are living the, the cruise ship life and not the canoe uh, and an empty creek bed life, right? You got to convince yourself. And a lot of people do a lot of pretending and they won't acknowledge the reality of what's there, which then makes, puts Christianity in a very vulnerable situation. All right? So there, so there is a discrepancy. So the first possible answer is, well, anyone who doesn't live up to what it we're supposed to be getting is not saved. What would be a second option? Ah, is it possible that maybe some of these promises about what the Holy Spirit does or doesn't do is limited to specific individuals related to the context of said chapter? Now, we're not going to be able to get to another one, but let's just do this. I think this is a good one, right? All right. So the first one is, well, okay, they're not saved. That one's just, you see the problem. The second one is, it may, possible. So let's go with this one. Everyone find me the verse where it says he will lead us into all truth. It's mentioned, it's the, give the reference in the Bible dictionary. We'll stop with this once, once we find it. I know we're already over time again. Almost at an hour. See who can find it first. If you need to, just look up the word truth in a concordance and see if you can find it that way. But it's in the Bible dictionary. It's Gospel of John, right? Oh, it doesn't. Well, look up John fifteen twenty six and see what you find. Yeah, okay. That's not going to be it, right? All right. 
That's about the comforter. That's the one we read. Where is it? You can use Google if you need to. Just type in the phrase in Google. It will lead us into all truth. You should find it in about 2.3 seconds. Going to have you look it up. Ask Siri. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. How did you find it? Okay. All right. I was going to say, you have all kinds of different ways. All right. Now, John 16, verse 12 says, I still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. That's, that's putting it in a great context. He's talking to someone specifically, right? Who's he talking to? Is he talking to John? Clearly he's talking to the disciples. Can everyone agree? I mean, I hope, if you don't agree, you can go look it up. But I mean, go back to chapter 16, verse 1. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. He's referring to the, to the disciples, right? They will ban you from the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. He's referring to the disciples. Yeah. Clearly the context is the disciples. So then he goes on to say, I have many things to tell you. Hey, you guys, right? The disciples. But you can't bear them now. So when is he going to tell them? When is, it, when is he going to let them know the things they need to know? Because they can't handle it at that time. So what does he say? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Who's the you? Wouldn't it be the disciples who can't bear to hear what he needs to tell them right then? Yeah, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whenever, whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to, to come. Right? So immediately we can at least take that verse and go, well, it would make perfect sense to be the disciples, right? Yes, it would make perfect sense. Especially those disciples who were going to go on to do what? Write the New Testament. Right. He's going to lead them into all truth. And do we believe that what was written here is truth? Yes. So therefore, if he was guiding them into truth, and that guiding was writing of Scripture, and we believe the Scripture to be true, then that not only did that happen, it was fulfilled. Therefore, it's not for whom? Us. Yeah, clearly it's the disciples trying to figure it out. Now, I know people don't like that, but why? what would be my best argument for saying that's not applicable to us? What would be my best argument for that? Well, I'm just saying for that verse, my best argument why this is not applicable to us is because it doesn't happen. 
Okay? Right? Yeah. When, for, you can even just forget context. You can just forget context. It doesn't happen. All truth. It doesn't happen. I mean, how many times do we disagree here? Right? And I'm just like, if the Holy Spirit's guiding us into all truth, there should never be a disagreement with one of my sermons. Ever. Now, if y'all got saved, maybe then that would happen. I could go make, see, I could make that argument. <laughs> well, that's the wrong way of arguing, okay? <laughs> okay? But you see how that works? I mean, we know in 2,000 years, I mean, we've talked about it so many times. We'll get, we'll get like multiple commentaries and what happens? One verse, 20 different answers. How can that be possible if we're all being guided into all truth? And then guess what? Nobody should ever fail Bible college or seminary. Don't even have to pray for it. That just says it's going to happen. It doesn't say you have to pray for it to happen. It's going to guide me into all truth. So if you ask me a question about the Bible, I shouldn't even have to, I shouldn't even have to study. Right? He didn't say you'll study and come into all truth. He's going to guide you into all truth. Clearly that has to... Now, I'm saying if that is true there, then is it possible that in... Not, I'm not, I can't guarantee this in every case, but in many of these passages, that this was specific promises to those specific people within the apostolic age. Now, the way the Catholic Church gets around that is they believe in apostolic succession. We, re- we obviously reject apostolic succession. Now, we reject apostolic succession, but in some ways we really believe in apostolic succession because we believe that the promises given to the apostles are really for us and we have the same power and the same ability. Holy Spirit's guiding us into all truth. He empowers us. Boom, he does this, he does this, he does this, he does this. The only problem is we don't have a system and for it to even work. Because everyone believes they have the Holy Spirit. Everyone believes what they believe to be true. And they believe anyone who doesn't believe what they believe is wrong. And we may go so far to say that they are not saved, which is a very common argument in the evangelical world. I'm not saying it's perfect. Basically the Pope. Yeah, right. I mean, in, in some evangelical churches, that's what it comes down. I'm not saying this works, but what I want you to see, you see all of those promises, you know that it, it doesn't live up to the reality. So we've got to come up with an answer. What I, but what I'm most baffled by is we just read an entire entry about the Holy Spirit, and I still don't really know much about the Holy Spirit. Do you? Everything, when it talks about the Holy Spirit, everybody wants to look at what? What he does. I'm not going to step on a dog. Okay. His personality, his deity, his relation to the Trinity, and then his office. Okay, that, that seems to be a much better approach. That one, the, the dictionary, but I just wanted to look at how when you start looking for some information about the Holy Spirit, it gets really, it almost always goes there like, everybody's like, ooh, ooh, the Holy Spirit, yeah! Tell me what I can do. Tell me what I can do. What gifts do I have? What ability do I have? What, what, and, and it almost always goes into that. 
Because everybody wants, the Holy Spirit's the thing that gives us the power. The Holy Spirit's the thing that gives us the experience. The Holy Spirit is the thing that creates the excitement. And Christians long for that. But all the people who supposedly have the experience and the power and the excitement are typically no better than the people who don't. And then you have to ask yourself, why? All right. That's a long ways from getting us answers, but I I wanted us to see all the claims. Because those who are working on the topical method, as you're going through, you'll be like, well, wait a minute, there's one of those claims, there's one of those claims, or wait a minute. Maybe you'll see when you're looking at all the verses, huh, I don't think that applies to everyone, right? Because Samson, how did Samson gain such power? The hair was a symbol, but didn't the spirit come upon him? Clearly, he doesn't come upon everyone that way. So, I'm just saying there's an example, right? There's an example. Right. Right. But I'm just saying if he can come on someone and give him that kind of strength, then you can't tell me he can't give me the strength just to stop sinning. So if you're going to tell me he gives me power, why do you limit the power if he had the power to, to allow Samson to do all the things Samson did? Well, he only gives me... You see, you, we create all kinds of weird... Like, he gives me power, but that power just isn't strong enough to get me to perfection. That makes no sense to me. And if we all have the same power, why aren't we all reached the same level of godliness? And you can have horrible sins committed not only by me, by you, but by anybody in the church, Correct? So it just, and if God's all-powerful, it's just, it's so weird. Hey, you have the power of God inside of you, but you can't be perfect. All right, right. but then it comes down that I'm quenching it. What, couldn't he overcome my ability to quench it? <laughs> I mean, see, that, that still, that puts me more powerful than God. That's broken theology. It's just so weird. And, and I look, I don't want to completely dismiss the, the ministry of the Spirit. I'm just saying that we've got to have a, we've got to come to some reasonable, logical explanation to the discrepancy. Because everyone acknowledges that we are never, in every era, in every age, there's always someone writing that the church does not look like what the church is supposed to be. Paul was writing that Corinth did not look what, what the church was supposed to be. It starts in the New Testament. Does Paul go, guys, you got the power of the Holy Spirit, just stop it. Doesn't seem to do that, does he? Why not? Maybe our understanding of that is, is wrong. I'm not saying, and, and I'm not saying that there's an easy answer. I'm just saying I clearly know that he's not leading us into all truth. I know that to be a fact. I don't even need hermeneutics to figure that out. I can just look around. I had to take tests in Bible college I had to take tests in seminaries. I wasn't getting supernatural answers given to me. All right, we'll stop there. Lord God, we come before you this evening. This is such an important subject where there's so much confusion. Let us look at each verse that mentions the ministry of the Holy Spirit and let's give us the ability to be honest with it and acknowledge what it seems to say versus what we clearly experience And let us think hard about why there's a discrepancy. Give us the ability to be honest with ourselves and help us try to come to a better understanding of this important doctrine. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said...